Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. So, Stephen and I met Richard. 30 plus years ago in yeah, London yeah. when we were a lot fresher and there wasn't any grey hair to be seen um, and uh, Richard has spent his life working in mental health as a consultant psychiatrist in Cornwall where he lives with his daughter Ruby who's 19 yeah. and Richard's passion really is to help Christians to understand a healthy theology about faith and their well-being and to, to walk into health. Is that fair to say? Yeah. You're going to say something like <laughs> yeah. that? No, no. Okay. Um, and uh, he's here today. He's going to do a talk, and then he and I are going to do a Q&A. We had some questions through, and we're just going to have a conversation. We haven't rehearsed it, so we're just going to go with the flow and see what happens. Um, and at the end, Richard would be very keen for any other questions or comments just to have a conversation which would be a very un-Belfast thing to do we're not good at giving much or talking so I've assured him we're going to be a different crowd <laughs> let's see so um, we are honoured to have him um, he's got his book with us with him we have it at the back called Understanding Spiritual Depression it's a really uh, short but helpful book there, it's divided into chapters you would gain so much from it it's down at the back and um, he would sign it if you wanted would you? oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. definitely so, short just to reassure you <laughs> the most important thing short chapters but they're good um, so I'm going to hand over to Richard and then after he's spoken we're going to do a little bit of a Q&A so maybe we can give him a redeemer welcome thank you go Thank you very, thanks very much. It's a, a great uh, honour to, to be here. As Steph says, I've known Steph and Steve for 33 years. I'm staying with Jeremy, Jackie and Matthew. I've known for 40 years. Who, and uh, um, and uh, Pete and Jane, I've known, I've known you for about 40 years as well. So it's, it's, it feels a great place to come. And um, yeah, I've been a psychiatrist in the NHS for... 33 years, which is rather scary, and um, I'm also a reader or a lay minister in the Church of England, and I've always kind of been intrigued about the relationship between faith and mental health, and uh, as Steph's kindly plugged my book, uh, it's at the back there, uh, I've written, a, it's quite weird, it's just, it's my own head is in this book, what I've been thinking about for about 30 years. And sometimes I read it and I think, gosh, that's quite strange. But it's the stuff that's been knocking around my head. And often when I'm at church, I'm thinking about people at work. And often when I'm at work, I'm thinking about God and how it relates to people's lives. And I think it's very important to bring that together. And I guess the main reason I wrote the book is because I believe that bad theology or theology's ideas about God can actually lead to spiritual depression, whilst good theology and getting, it, get, getting a good understanding of God can protect us from depression. And um, 
the, uh, I was very influenced by a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones that some of you may know of called Spiritual Depression. He wrote in 1965, which is a quite brilliant book and sort of stimulated me to write this because the content is brilliant and uh, it's a bit sort of old-fashioned in the way he writes it, but the actual content is fantastic. I'd really recommend that to you as well. Um, and the important thing is that in the 20th century, a lot of famous psychiatrists like Sigmund Freud and Albert Ellis were very down on, on faith, Christianity, religion. They said religious faith was neurotic and was actually bad for your mental health. And that sort of pervaded quite a lot of especially psychoanalytic thinking. Not everyone thought that. Psychoanalysts such as um, Guntrip and Jung had a much more sympathetic view of faith. But in the 21st, well, late 20th, 21st century, that was opinion. There was a lot of, there's been a lot of research which shows actually that religious faith is associated with protecting people from depression. There's a systematic review uh, um, of about 98,000 people that shows that actually having a faith protects you from depression and if you get depressed, you're more likely to recover. So the empirical evidence is very much saying that religious faith is protective. So I think that's something that's really important to know because there's still a sort of um, uh, th that hangover idea that people are quite defensive about, you know, Christians sometimes are nervous going to see psychologists and psychotherapists because they think their faith's going to be undermined. I certainly don't think that's the case, but the actual hard evidence is very much supportive of that. And basically, um, I want to sort of, I wanted to look at the Bible. What, what my view of the Bible is, what's the Bible about? I think the Bible's asking two basic questions. What is God like and what has God done? And I think that they're, they're the two basic questions. But what really strikes me is so many characters in the Bible have suffered, do suffer from spiritual depression. There's some fantastic psalms where people are just expressing their depression. Psalms 42 and 43 are really noticeable. Psalm 88 I quite love Psalm 88 because it's so bleak. It always appeals to me for some weird reason. But there's absolutely no hope in it whatsoever. I think there's lots of hope, and don't get me wrong, I'm not hopeless. But I quite like the honesty of it. I think Psalm 88 is almost someone, I, I would almost diagnose them of having severe depressive illness with psychotic symptoms. They're quite paranoid, actually. Psalm 88 is really a fantastic description of what, feeling depressed can be like. But if you look at the accounts of Job, Hannah, Elijah, Saul, David, Moses, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, I would say at each one of them shows, show evidence that they were really quite depressed at times. And quite a few of them were suicidal at times. And I think that is something I personally find great comfort in, that people of great faith can go through really dark times and obviously get through it. And I'm just focusing this morning, on because uh, I want to have time for, 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 for talking with Steph, on two aspects, two of the chapters I've, I've written. And the first one is on the nature of God and the grace of God. What is God like? And I'd like Steph if to, if to read the account of the serpent 
talking to Eve. Um, this is from Genesis 3, 1 to 8 in the message. Um, not working. Well, my voice don't is worry, don't worry. The, ser- the serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman. Do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it, don't even touch it, or you will die. The serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. When the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything. She took it and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband and he ate. Immediately the two of them did see what's really going on. They saw themselves naked. They sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves. When they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden, and they hid from God. I think, I love Genesis. I think it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, and, and this passage has such an inherent truth in it. So the serpent, what does he say to Eve? He says, God is not telling the truth. God resents our potential rivalry. God is not trustworthy, and God is not good. And my own view is the, there's a pagan view of God that's quite sort of inherent in, in practically all of us, that there's this God we believe in is angry with us. He's never satisfied with us and sort of needs appeasement. That God doesn't want the best for us and God is not trustworthy. The whole point about the serpent is that's what he says to Eve. And it is not true. It's a lie. And I think there's modern threads of this in our lives and in the world. I mean, you see it in the secular world where a suffering world, many people say, well, because there's so much suffering in the world, it demonstrates that God is not good. Nature, red in tooth and claw, and that if there is a God, it's not good. I remember an atheist friend talking to, to, to him once, and he said, I don't believe in God, but if, if he does exist, he's a bastard. And I think that is quite prevalent and A real challenge and a real sort of, I mean, the word for Satan, it means the accuser, doesn't it? It's constantly accusing God and accusing us. And it's interesting that uh, I have a friend who, she invited someone to church, just a regular person, said, oh, I I couldn't come to church, I'd be struck by lightning. And that's that sort of sense of, if there is a God up there, and I bump into him, he's going to absolutely destroy me because that's the kind of God we believe in. And another friend, who's a, de- a, a, a neighbor actually, who was a dentist, and he got, he got an arthritic illness. He got arthritis in his hands, which is kind of devastating if you're a dentist. I was just talking to him uh, at the school gates, 
And he just suddenly said, he told me this, he goes, what have I done to deserve this? And that phrase, what have I done to deserve this, is that idea that there's a, some kind of deity there who just wants to punish me. And I think there's a biblical tendency of this, for this as well, isn't there? So the whole book of Job, Job is having a devastating time. He's clearly depressed and suicidal because of his situation. And his friends say, there must be a reason for this. God must be punishing you. You must have done something wrong. That's the, and of course, he hasn't. We know that right from the first. He, he's, he's not being punished for anything he's doing wrong. He's, this is happening because he's so good. And Job, the great thing about Job is saying, no, I haven't. I haven't sinned any more than anyone else. This, make, this makes no sense whatsoever, and I refuse to just accept the easy, the easy idea that it's because of my sin that this has happened. And God vindicates Job. And God says, you're the one who's in the right. The friends who are saying, oh, it all makes sense with God's judgment, they're in the wrong. Doesn't give an easy answer, but does, is very clear. And then Jesus, Jesus' disciples... Meeting a disabled, no, seeing a disabled person said, is that because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, no, that's not the way reality works. It's not, that's not the way God works. Again, doesn't give an easy answer. And even today, we still have it in the church, it's sort of health, you know, the health and wealth gospel. The idea, if your life's going quite well, you're obviously blessed by God. And if your life's difficult, well, maybe there's something you're sinning or something. It creeps in so easily into our thinking. Whenever life's going wrong, you think, it must be God punishing me for something, which is deeply unbiblical and wrong. And the other thing that really, I really feel strongly about this, it's very easy, if you believe God's like that, is to be passive. Because you think, what I must do is avoid sinning, and therefore... I'm not going to do anything where I might sin. And I'm just going to just sort of keep, keep sort of on, on, on the sort of basic stuff. I'm not going to take any risks because I might sin. And I think that is very easy to creep into our Christian lives. I'm not going to say anything in case I say the wrong thing. And one of my favorite quotes, which bear with me on this because it's a... I think it was Luther who said, either trust God or love God. Trust God or love God and sin boldly. I think that's a really interesting... I'm not saying that should be your church motto. But um, I think what he's saying is, trust God and be active. And probably in being active, you're going to sin somewhere. You're going to put your foot in it. You're going to lose your rag. You might, you might make, you're going to make mistakes. But go for it anyway. Because trust God and love God that actually being active. The parable of the talents, I think, is all about that. You know, don't just bury it, go for it, and take the risk. And I think if you believe in a God who's going to punish you the moment you make a mistake, it makes you passive. It doesn't make you active. And I think that's uh, really important. So I think the running thread of the Bible, what is God like? These are the fundamentals. God is on your side and wants the best for you. God is good and loves you unconditionally. And Jesus died to set us free, not to bind us. That it's good news, not bad news. 
And I think that, that's the core of Christianity. And Jesus died for us before any response from us, and he, and he shares in our sufferings. And the truth of the grace of God, the unconditional love, mercy, forgiveness of God, it was a real shock for some major figures. I mean, Luther, he was a monk. You know, he was really dedicated to God, but totally, it was almost like he was one of those Christians who prayed, but always felt he didn't pray enough. And when he studied Romans and realized the grace of God, it totally released him. Because he realized it wasn't about, I've got to pray enough, I've got to be good enough. That he was saved, he was redeemed unconditionally. The same for Wesley. I mean, he was a very committed Christian. He was a missionary, and he just felt totally unsatisfied until, again, he heard Romans' heart was strangely warmed. And he realized he was, he was redeemed by God unconditionally. And he didn't have to strive. He didn't have to work work enough. You know, that feeling some Christians have, if only I prayed more, if only I gave more money, if only I served more, maybe God would like me. And it's just tragic because, no, it's not dependent on how much you pray, how much money you give, how good you are. It's totally unconditional. And they were Christians, but their lives were transformed when their thinking about God was transformed. And, you know, God is pleased to see you. When you walk through these doors, God is really pleased you've turned up, and he's pleased to see you. And God loves you for how you are right now. He's not waiting for you to get a bit better or waiting for you to reach some ideal that you'll never reach. It's actually where you are right now that God gives you his unconditional love. And I think that is, God loves us. He doesn't hate us. But sadly, a lot of people do feel God hates them. And he loves us for who we are. And that leads us to being so active for him. Because we know, we know he's going to love us, even when we make mistakes and, and put our foot in it. So that's the first part. The second part I wanted to focus on, it's funny because 11 chapters are on depression. I thought, oh, God, I've got to try and do something a bit positive. So the last one I thought I'll do on, I will be glad and joy. And about nurturing joy. And one of the things, it's one of the factors about being joyful. First, I'm just going to, firstly, pursuing our own good and enjoying life is a good thing. God wants you to enjoy life and enjoy the good things in life. And to suggest it is a bad thing to enjoy life and enjoy the good things in life is wrong. It's not true. God wants us to have pleasure. Our pursuit of pleasure mirrors our hunger for God. Now, there's a book, Jeremy Jernigan. I always thought, I want to do a theology of pleasure. I really wanted to do that. And he's written it, uh, and it's great. And, um, and I think he, he captures it. And there's some brilliant C.S. Lewis quotes in The Weight of Glory about the idea that not pursuing our own good um, is not Christian, is a deeply, it's a Stoic, and it's connected with the Stoic and the Kant. It's not Christian. God wants you to be joyful and enjoy life and enjoy the pleasures in life. It goes wrong 
when our pursuit of pleasure is on our own selfish terms about our own pleasure without reference to others. That's when things go wrong. And there's a big discussion around that. Um, and he discusses that superbly. So what can increase our joy? I just want to go through four things that I can really do think increases our joy. The first is love and community. I think life is so much more joyful when we're in a loving community, when we have loving our relationships, because it connects our individual joy with the joy of others, and pleasure is shared. And it avoids us getting lonely and narcissistic when we become obsessed with ourselves. And when you're part of a community and you see your spiritual life as part of a community, I think that is incredibly healthy because I think sometimes Christians can get very self-obsessed with their own um, spiritual life. I had a a friend who's a pastor who uh, recently, after the COVID pandemic, said, I used to think the most important thing was people's, you know, your personal relationship with Jesus. And he said, I'm starting to think that's not the most important thing in the Christian life. The most important Christian thing in the Christian life is how you connect in the community of, of Christians and connect with God through that. And I think I agree with him. In fact, it was Pete, you won't remember this, I remember about 30, 40 years, no, 35 years, at a vineyard conference, I remember you saying, it's quite easy being a Christian, it's really difficult being church. And I think, I've never forgotten you saying that, I, thought, I think that's true. And I think it's um, being part of a loving community, our Western culture is so individual, individualized, and compared to most cultures, and I think one of the things the church has to offer in our present society, because I think the focus on self-fulfillment can be intensely destructive. And the idea of being a loving community is actually quite radical. Um, and actually, it's more. I, mean, I, I love the analogy of soil. I quite like soil. It's a really fascinating thing, the science of soil. And the number of organisms in a handful of soil is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And each one, individually, is fairly insignificant. But together, it makes soil the stuff of life. Without soil, there's no life on Earth. And, and it's, it's a community of organisms and plants, an astonishing thing, just a handful of soil. And I work in the NHS. If I work on my own, and I've done research on my own, and it's just a nightmare, and it's really hard. When you're with a team, you can really do things. Because, frankly, you're good at some things, and you're not very good at other things. So sports, we are a sports team, and what that means. So church, the thing about church is you're all good at some things and not so good at other things. But when you come together, you're much more than the sum of your parts, let alone when the Holy Spirit is part of you as well. So love and community is really important, I think, for joy. Secondly, gratitude. Thankfulness is really important. You must have all um, heard, um, you know, uh, lots of Bible verses about being thankful. And there's evidence from the psychiatric literature that gratitude is really good for your mental health and it protects you from depression. 
Being thankful means we stop to notice the good things in our lives. It's a technical term. It's cognitive reframing. We've all done it when you sort of lie in bed at night and, you know, ten people have said something really nice to you and one person has said something that upsets you and you just sit there and you think about the one person who said something that upset you. And if you step back and say, hang on a minute, let's think about those ten people who said something really nice to me and I'll be thankful for them. It totally changes how you're thinking when you're lying in bed at night. Uh, And also, just going for a walk and thinking about the things God has given you to be thankful for. And it blesses the giver and receiver. That's the astonishing thing. A very quick story. I was at a conference a a few years ago, and a woman walked up to me. I didn't recognize her, and she said... 25 years ago, I was a medical student in the East End of London, and I did a placement with you for three weeks, and we drove around in your Morris Minor, around Bow and Poplar, seeing patients. And she said, and I, that made me want to be a psychiatrist. I've been a psychiatrist for the last 20 years. I just wanted to thank you. Ah, oh, I tell you, my, I, was, I, I, I can't tell you how happy I was and grateful for her to make the effort just to thank me and how pleased I was that she'd done that. And just being thankful blesses the giver and the receiver. So important. Third thing is creativity. Art, work, cooking, gardening. Being creative is joining God in the act of creation. It's being the image of God. It's being like God. And that is incredibly important. Um, you know, Talking to Steve last night and his photography how we, we don't realize how important being creative is. And it, whatever way you want it, that's, I think gardening, you know, for people who are really into gardening, there's something deeply spiritual about it because it's participating in that. Cooking, I think cooking is incredibly therapeutic. It's, and, but it's all about being creative in whichever way works for you. Obviously, music, I think church tends to, really stress music, but we don't sometimes stress the other signs of creativity. And it develops community. I find it far easier to connect with people when I do stuff with them. I'm not very good. If I walk into a party and I just talk to people, I sort of panic. But if I'm doing something with someone, I can just, that's, I'm off. I can, I can talk to someone. It doesn't half connect you. I think work, is one, when it's at its best, is wonderfully creative. And we should see work as I mean, it's not drudgery. It can be just wonderfully creative. And God, I mean, the whole description of creation is that sort of wonderful um, creativity, the, the playfulness of God in creating, creating the world. And you look at nature from quantum to relativity, the infinite joy of creation. And then finally, last one, Steph, where are you? That last, the last reading from um, Philippians. Um, it's on contentment and sufficiency in God. Very short reading. Um, Philippians 4, verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, where living in plenty or in want. I think there's such profundity in, in, in Paul's words about being sufficient whatever the circumstances. Heaven help me, I haven't got there yet. I'm, I can, moan, I can moan, moan for, in, for England when I'm in the mood. 
but that idea of being content in whatever the circumstances, that you're so plugged into God that you know that he loves you whether life's going well or going badly, whatever the circumstances, that your basic sort of sense of being is not dependent on circumstances, that our relationship with God has that peace or shalom of God within us, and it makes us resilient then to circumstances. And, you know, we've all known people who have this, you know, that they've had tremendously difficult lives, and yet they radiate some kind of peace and contentment despite whatever slings and arrows of outrageous fortune fall upon them. And that is a wonderful thing that we should all seek. And I, I, I think sort of of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I just... Uh, Brilliant biography of him, Eric Metaxases or something is his name. And Bonhoeffer, you know, this incredibly sophisticated, he grew up in a very sort of, uh, you know, well-to-do German family, became a theologian, highly respected. In Nazi Germany, everything falls apart. He ends up in prison. He knows he's going to die with a bunch of other people who know he's going to die. And everyone says... He had this peace about him, and basically he just pastored all the other people who were going to die with him. And he had no, they said they couldn't believe the lack of anxiety. He had so, such, such a peace. Unbelievably awful circumstances, previously very privileged circumstances. Didn't, it didn't make any difference. His, his faith in God was constant. And I think that is an extraordinary example to, to us. And it's an activity of God within us to give us that sense of sufficiency and contentment in all circumstances. I think I'm going to end there and go for the um, um, uh, question and answers because I know you've given some questions. So thanks for listening. Thank you. And we'll, we'll move this and we'll sit down. Oh. It's a heavy yeah. table. Thank you so much, Richard. Um, You've given us a lot, but we had some questions, and so I just want us to have a little bit of a live conversation, um, and then we can Thank you very talk much. at the end. So, yeah, far away. Have, I'll far away. I'll get my notes here. I guess that the first thing I'd like you to speak to is that idea that often within churches and followers of Jesus. When we hear someone struggling about their mental health, our response is, we'll pray more or read your Bible more. And I would like you to speak to that a little bit and, and what is a healthier response and also how we as followers of Jesus can model something different. Right, I'll, I'll get a bit sort of um, what's philosophical first. I think one of the real problems of Christianity is we've been polluted by Plato and, uh, and the platonic split between body, mind, and soul. I've been having lots of dis discussions with Jeremy because I, I don't believe in the soul. I think, I think the it's deeply unchristian. I think the, the Judeo-Christian view of human beings is holistic. We are whole. Body, mind, spitting body and mind and spirit. It's sort of useful sometimes for communication, but they're not split. And one of the things that really upsets me is when people see praying for someone is spiritual, 
taking antidepressants is somehow a bit dirty and a bit, a bit sort of almost giving in and not having faith in God. I deeply disagree with that. Okay, I'm biased. I've been prescribing medication for 33 years. You know, I've seen it, some, and it has side effects. Sometimes it's, bad, you know, sometimes it's badly prescribed, obviously. But I've seen medication change people's lives. I've given people ECT. I've given about, delivered ECT about 200 times. I've prescribed it probably more. And I've seen, elect, that's electroconvulsive therapy. I've seen it change people's lives. I think... ECT and antidepressants are as spiritual as prayer. The, the people who developed, you know, a lot of people of deep faith have worked for the last 500 years to develop treatments. They be, and, and, and they believed it's their um, uh, vocation from God to develop physical treatments. So there's nothing incompatible. I treat people as a whole person. Some people need medication because they're unwell. That's if they've got diabetes, if they've got cancer, and sometimes if they've got severe depression, if they've got psychosis. It's, it's a gift from God. So I, I really passionately believe that we should have a holistic view. Sometimes people get depressed, and they say, why am I depressed? Why am I getting wrong spiritually? And they go to their GP, and they've got thyroid disease. And you treat their thyroid disease and they get better. That's how we should see things as holistic and not separate them. That's not to say you shouldn't pray for someone. Just as if someone's got cancer, you should pray for them. But you shouldn't say, don't take chemotherapy or radiotherapy. They are mutually beneficial. They're gifts from God. So did that answer your question? Yep. And, yeah. And, and so, of course, the church, what have you, you know, got in... Of course, you can pray for, pray for people. And most of all, provide a loving community. That's, that's what's going to really bless someone and aid their healing. And as I said, there's good empirical evidence that religious communities and religious faith protects people from depression. And when you get depressed, it can accelerate your recovery. But a lot of people get depressed. Look at the Bible. All these great spiritual people get depressed, from what I read, because of life's difficulties. Mm. We wouldn't often hear that ECTs as useful as prayer. That's that's, that's what I think. Radical, and I love it. If you think um, I'm talking rubbish, feel free to come up afterwards and say it's rubbish. <laughs> but I just passionately believe that. Yeah. So. Maybe just digging into that a little bit more, if you think of the statistics on mental health, one in four of us over the course of our lifetime will, will suffer yeah. a mental health issue. Yeah. And I suppose I wanted to speak to um, something that maybe is not ever talked about in, in faith communities, and that's suicidal thought or the, the yeah. completion of suicide. Um, and I wanted to say that probably 10 years ago, I had an episode of depression, and I can remember having thoughts that everyone would be better if I wasn't around. Um, and it took me quite a while to name that to Steve and to my GP yeah. because I felt terrible shame. Um, and I did everything you said. I went to therapy. I took my tablets and time and I prayed and, and I recovered. But I wonder why we don't talk about suicidal thought and why there is a shame attached and what 
What, what would you say to that and what would you say to us as a community? We're in a ward where we've the highest suicide rate, probably in Europe. Yeah. Father Eugene, you know, did seven funerals a month ago and four of them were young people who had completed suicide. So yeah. it is a scourge on our society. What would you say to that? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, Suicide's a, de a devastating thing. I've, I've, in my career, I've had about 20 patients complete suicide, two complete homicide. I've been in coroner's court for about six um, uh, people who've, who've completed suicide, and it's, it's devastating. Um, my wife died seven years ago, and I wouldn't say I, I felt suicidal, but I sort of craved death. I really thought, I don't really don't want to live anymore. I'd really quite like to be dead and, and go to the next thing. And um, so I'm not equating that with really, in, uh, with some of you, people in this room will have experienced intense feelings of desperate suicide. In, in, um, uh, in 12 months period, 8% of us will have suicidal thoughts. So I can't see how many people are in this room. What do you think? About 50? So four of you would have had intense feelings of suicide in the last year, 12 months. So in the last five years, you can probably say that's 10 of you. And I think it's so important to be compassionate. And obviously the, the, the Christian church has in the past had a lack of compassion. Um, I, you know, when, when people completed suicide, they were refused to be given Christian burial. I went to a talk on Dartmoor and in the crossroads of all that, there's people buried who completed suicide because they were refused burial. A lot of them were working women who um, had been maids and stuff, who'd been made pregnant by aristocratic young men, probably, you know, a lot of the time probably raped, got pregnant and were so ashamed they killed themselves. You know, what is, whose side is God on in that situation? And, you know, we must be compassionate. And I think the other thing we have to admit is when someone tells us I'm feeling suicidal, it's quite scary because you suddenly think, oh, my goodness, who should I tell? What if anything happens? It'll, you know, and, and we get anxious about it. And I've spent my sort of career talking to people, most of whom are suicidal, and you sort of have to live with that risk. And it's hard. It's really hard. Um, but it's really important, I think, that we have compassion for people feeling, who have suicidal thoughts. And if, if any of you have had suicidal thoughts, well, just to say, so did Elijah, so did Moses, so did Jeremiah. Can anyone think of anyone else? Quite a few people in the Bible. Sorry? Hagar. Hagar, Hagar, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of people. And I think we should have compassion and we should understand it's not spiritual weakness. It's spiritual honesty when you, when you, when you say that. And to share those feelings. And, I'm, you know, it's, it's normal to, if someone does share that with you to think, oh, my goodness, you know, what do I do? That's, that's okay. That, being angry, that's just okay. But if people feel they can share it, I think it, it's a very important part of being a loving community.
What do you think? Uh, well, I think there's something very beautiful about knowing the statistics because we were talking about this last night, the Rob yeah. Bell Drop Like Stars event, yeah. where 30 years of psychological research has, what it has basically told us is that it doesn't actually matter what therapy you go to, what makes the difference is feeling you're not on your own. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think then how do we as a faith community, you know, lift the shame? Yeah. And maybe it is by naming it, by... Um, and talking about it and making the place, as you say, a loving community, yeah. that, that seems to be the opportunity and the challenge. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you for that. Um, the other thing we were talking about and wanted to just speak to is um, how we manage our faith and our mental health when there's this constant stream of news and media information that is traumatizing, particularly if we think at this very moment. Um, and our son, Tom, was talking to me, he heard a podcast this week, and he said that um, they have looked, at people who do algorithms, or I don't even know what I'm talking about, but you know what I mean. Um, the most shocking photos are the ones that people interact with the most. And the most dreadful stories are the ones. So therefore, our news feed is pummeling through shocking photos and, and all of that. And they're calling it now trauma porn because that's what we're actually interested in. We are drawn to it and we, we interact with it more. And, and so I wondered in a, day, in a, a year when post-pandemic the world, it feels like we breathe anxiety every day. It, it's in the air that we breathe. The world doesn't feel safe. It's not safe. How do we manage ourselves? How do we deal with what has been put in our social media feeds? Or how do we manage our, ourselves in that challenge? Yeah, and you, you mentioned this last night, and I, that's one of the ones I find most difficult to answer and I, I, I need to sort of think about. Because I think the thing about... There's something about stimulation, isn't it? Stimulating ourselves. It's like sexual pornography. I think most men, if they're honest, are tempted by that because there's something pleasurable about that stimulation. And the fact it's so easy to click a button and get it is so... There's something... What is it about we want to be stimulated? And we want to be... That's, that's the sexual thing, but we, it's almost that looking at horror... I mean, I've never really understood horror films. One of my best friends, who's a really d devout Christian, he loves horror films. And... There's something about, uh, I don't quite get it, about wanting to be scared. It's almost like we want to feel emotion. And sometimes if we're sort of, especially if, if, if life's frankly a bit dull, it's very easy to say, I want a bit of stimulation. I want to sort of, and, and, and in different, in different um, realms. And I think we have to be really sort of careful. Because actually, one of the problems, I think, um, and I don't want to get really anti-social media because I think there's a, it's very easy to scapegoat social media. It's a, you need to do the research and really find out. But one of the problems at the moment is it's easy to have a passive life. Instead of going out there and engaging with the world, which is quite hard, messy, and as I say, we can easily mess up, but it's very rewarding, but it's quite hard work. You can do it online, which is deeply unsatisfying because you know it's sort of not engaging, but it's sort of easier. And I think it's almost like easy stimulation versus really 
sort of proper engagement with life. I mean, we're called to share in the sufferings of the world. Um, we're called to be joyful, but to share in the sufferings of the world, which is quite an interesting um, mix, really. But to share in the sufferings of the world, you've got to be active and go out and do stuff. And it's very easy to be passive. And I think the social media side, you can be a more passive engager in a way. So that's not a very good answer, I don't think, but it's, it's my sort of thoughts on it. Well, I think the fact that there isn't an easy... It's the easy answer, as we talked about last night, was, well, don't look at social media. But that's not actually possible, because it is drawing yeah. us in. So. And, and it's such a major part of life now. Yeah. And I, don't, I think, especially for young people, to say, oh, just live like we lived in the 1970s, it, it's, just, it's just a yeah. bit daft, really. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to give time to any questions or comments, and we'd really welcome them, um, because we like a bit of to and fro. Uh, but the last question I wanted you to speak to, really, was... So we've been friends since we were in our mid-twenties, and we're now in our late fifties. Yeah. Shocking as that Shocking. may be. Um, yeah. And I suppose if you could... If you and I could time travel back to our 26-year-old selves... What would I tell myself? I've been thinking about this. What would I tell myself that I've learned in the last 30 plus years about faith and spirituality and God that I wish I'd known back then? Yeah, you asked me this last night. I came up with something eventually and I've forgotten it. But, uh, Shall I say what I'd say? Yeah. You say what you say first. <laughs> so I said this to him last night and he went, well, what would you say? And I went, oh, okay. Um, I think when I was in my mid-twenties, God was up here. Um, he was above reproach. He was above question. He was up there. And I would never have thought of doubting him or being angry with him or showing an emotion. It was absolutely not what I would have done. And what I've learned is that he's not up there. He's right here beside me. Um, and it was the tough days and the roads I would never have chosen that brought him from up there to right beside me. Mm. And I wish my 26-year-old self had known that, that the, there was beauty and growth and, and a new experience of God that came in the dark days and in the days that I would never have expected. So th that would be the bit I'd time travel back. I think, yeah, I think I'd, I'd say, don't worry about things so much. You know, I, the... Actually, which is very easy to say, that God's, I mean, they say, God is on your side and wants the best for you. You don't know what's going to happen in life, but God is on your side and wants the best for you and isn't expecting lots from you. And that sounds, you know, not as in don't bother doing anything because God doesn't expect anything, but it's not dependent on you. Um, uh, it's, it's dependent on God. So, so just relax a bit. I suppose that's one of the things. But also that God, life is actually in the mundane. I mean, as I said, my wife died seven years ago. All my fond memories are the mundane. It's like washing up together, driving, sort of trying to work out where we're going, just sort of chatting, um, going for walks, just, just sort of hanging out, sort of just... That, that's the memory. I can't remember. My wedding day, it was frankly quite boring. And yeah, you know, all that fuss, it was just all that fuss. I don't think about that. I, don't, I never look at the photos. Does anyone, got your, does anyone ever look at their wedding photos? 
Nobody, you, know, you spend loads of money, you never look at them. Because they're boring. There's just lots of people standing. It's, uh, the actual life is in the mundane. Life is in the sort of talk you have over coffee. Yeah. It's like sometimes church is in, you know, you remember much more what you chatted about after. Yeah. I'm not, not slagging off the preachers or anything. Uh, uh, you can forget everything I've said. But, you know, it's in the mundane. It's in that sort of um, just in, 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 in the day-to-day that I think the most important things in life are. You did also say last night about the angel's advice to Elijah. Oh, yeah. I can't remember the... So, I mean, that sort of relates to all this. So, Elijah, superhero, rock star, fire coming down on Mount Carmel, totally obliterating all the prophets of Baal. We all fancy being like that, don't we? Being a bit of a spiritual superhero. Within a day, he is depressed, he's suicidal... He's actually saying, there's nobody else but me. Even though he's had a chat to Ob- I think Obadiah a few days before, he said, I hid 500 prophets for you, and you're, and you're trying to get me killed. So he knew there were lots of others, but he said, I'm the, you know, we've all done it. I'm the only one. I'm the only one who understands. I'm the only one. And he's sort of sitting there saying, I'm the only one. I've done everything I can. I've had enough. I want to die. And he's sitting there. And what does the angel do? The angel doesn't come and give him a sermon. The angel comes and says, I've cooked you some food, have something to eat, and get a good night's sleep. Then we'll chat. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes the mundane, just, you know, sleep, just go away and, and eat something and look after your physical health. You know, it's a bit like, um, I love Rob Bell, and, and he's, he did a brilliant 12 hours on Leviticus. And he says, Leviticus is, is a self-help program. It's, it's for, 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 for a sort of traumatized sort of group of people. Um, but it's sort of, he says, you know, it's like those programs that when things are really bad and you've just been sitting on the sofa for a month watching daytime TV. So the first thing you need to do is change your socks, cut your nails, have a shave and have a shower. That's the most, just go back to basics. And in a way, the angel was saying that to Elijah. And, that, and I, I quite like that. I can't remember what the context of it was. but That's good. Um, we're pretty much out of time, but we're very keen that there might be a question or even a comment. Anything anyone wants to say, we can rove the mic. Oh, great. Go for it, Lydia. Hi, just say thank you very much for having this conversation. I think it's really important and, um, yes, it's been really helpful. Um, I think it's really good that as a society and church we're getting better at talking about depression and anxiety. But I think I'm wondering about people who may be suffering from significant mental illnesses such as um, schizophrenia or psychosis or bipolar disorder and part of those conditions they might experience um, detachment from reality or hearing voices and being in a church environment where we talk about prayer and hearing from God and often people might not always respond in the most helpful way. How can we create an educated and supportive environment in church where we're able to understand and spot what people might be experiencing and not making it worse by over-spiritualizing it, if that makes sense? Yeah. I, to- I totally agree, and I, I, you know, I spent most of my career treating people with more, the more severe end of um, mental illness, such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and um, severe depression. Um, and uh, I didn't, I, 
I didn't want to sort of go into too much of a sort of psychiatric lecture, but when people have psychosis is when people have delusions, uh, false beliefs, um, or hallucinations, they're seeing and hearing things that other people can't see or hear. Um, it's, it's the most important thing is to support people and love them. Um, not, I, I, I mean, I strongly believe in um, uh, the importance of medication for those conditions because I've seen it really not, it doesn't work, nothing works for everybody, but for a lot of people, it can really help. It has side effects and there's a real challenge in balancing them. And the importance of research to, to develop new treatments is really important. But for church community, I think it's really important to accept people, even if, and the, the difficulty with when people have delusions is you can't reason with people. They're absolutely convinced. So the important thing is, most important thing is to be a loving community that accepts people. At times, it's, you're not, it's going to be a struggle to, you inherently can't understand why people believing this and, 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 and it's not, um, it's not about understanding, but not to, and obviously the, I had a lot of people with schizophrenia who went to Christian communities and were told uh, they were demonized and, and people tried to, to see it that way, which obviously was very, very traumatic for them. And it's a, um, I have, certainly haven't got all the answers, but the most important thing is to accept people try and understand where they're coming from and to be a loving community. Um, you can't expect the church to be a psychiatric treatment centre. That's sort of not its role, but it's, it's about sort of people who... Um, about an environment that accommodates a lot of different people. Because one of the other things that really strikes me is, is, is people who, who suffer from autism. So for people who suffer with autism they struggle with social interaction. So actually sitting in this room would be sort of hell on earth. Just, just being expected. And actually having coffee afterwards would be even worse. And you, how do we create churches that can accommodate people who, who don't want to socially interact, but they do want to have some connection and they do... They do want to worship God, and they do want to... That, I think that's a really... I, I remember we went to All Souls when I knew Stephen Steph, and, and I was doing my exams, and I was working really hard. So I started going to the 9.30 communion. All Souls, there'd be, what, 500-plus people. And then I go to the 9.30 Book of Common Prayer communion, and there was about 30 people, which was very small for All Souls. But what was interesting, we, did, we, did, uh, we had the service... And then as soon as the service finished, boom, everyone just disappeared. There was no coffee or anything. It was, and I just wondered, is this the sort of place for a, where people with some degree of autism, they come because they just do the service and then they go. They don't have to do the social interaction. And you need, I think that provided a really important thing for those people. I'm not saying that's the answer, but how do we... I mean, church is really challenging. I totally agree with Pete that church is it's, it's much easier being a Christian than being church. Because the, 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 the infinite variety of human personality, human experience, and the idea that anybody can walk in 
and we would welcome them and we would try and accommodate them. That's really challenging. It's a miracle, really, that it works. And, um, but that's what God calls us to do. Yeah, anybody who walks in, whatever their situation, whatever their mental health, whatever their mental state, you know. I suppose another thing Lydia is speaking to is the need for wisdom and training in people who are providing prayer and yeah. a, an awareness not to have an answer. Yeah. That actually people just need to know they're, they're loved and not alone yeah. and to go and seek, you know, medical support, which is a, a gift from God. One of the, one of the big, biggest compliments I ever got from, from a, one of my nursing colleagues, she goes, what I've learned from you, Richard, is you quite often say, I don't know. And I seem to spend half my professional life, patients would ask me a question and i go, I don't know, uh, because I didn't know. And I think it's really important that we say that as Christians as well. You know, why has God, why has God let this happen to me? I don't know most of the time. And that's not copping out, that's... That's being honest, and I think, you know, you, I don't you know, all Job's friends had a really great explanation where the truth is they didn't know, and if they just said, look, we don't know, but we'll, we'll, stay, we'll, we'll be with you in your suffering, that's what we're called to do sometimes, I think. There's another question. Oh, there's two more, so oh, hang oh, on, this, this, this woman got my eye first. Come on, Susie. I don't want to delay communion. That would feel a bit sacrilegious. <laughs> Thank you so much um, for what you shared. I was interested to, um, you sort of made the point about not sort of separating the spiritual or the sacred and, you know, the body, that holistic approach, but then the reference to spiritual depression. So I'm wondering... Yeah, you caught me out. You've, you've, yeah, you've <laughs> caught me out. I'm wondering what's sort of useful maybe about it, making this distinction between clinical and spiritual and how do you define I, them as different? Right, I put it in the book because I totally... I'm polluted with that. It's so hard. Our Western thought is so divided between body, mind, and spirit. It's, uh, it's so hard to get beyond that platonic split. Um, that I'm, that, and, and it's sort of easy to... Com- it's a form of communication as well. I mean, but um, what I mean by spiritual depression, in a way, I'm talking about... In a way where for people who get depressed, who have a strong faith... And therefore, the spiritual aspect of their lives is really important to them. That you, I think it's really important to address that, or to say, if you have a strong faith and you become depressed, that, that faith is really relevant to you. It can actually, if you get a wrong idea of God, be causing the depression. If you get the right idea of God, if you get the right theology, it can actually help in your healing. That's sort of what I mean by it. I've sort of explained that a bit in the book. Hi, Richard. Um, well, Steph started this morning by telling people that we needed to say thank you, so I thought that maybe <laughs> we needed to do that um, to you. Um, but also, I publicly want to thank the leaders and all the members of this church and I'm going to cry, but it's okay. It's okay to cry. Who have lifted us out of the deepest, saddest emptiness that we arrived with just under a year ago. And they have held us, and they have cared for us, and they have loved us, and they have showed us again 
are the loving God that we knew before religious trauma stole that from us. And I know that there are many people just even sitting here who have been through the same. And publicly, I just want to say that you have no idea how much difference you have made. And that that loving community that you talk about happens here and it makes a difference and we love you for it. And also publicly, I just want to say thank you, God, for antidepressants. <laughs> thank you. I, I don't think I, I can add, add to that because it, it was very powerful what you said. But what is especially powerful, I, you know, I have great admiration for people who lead churches because it can be quite traumatizing in and of itself. And I, th- I, I thank you for thanking them so that they realize how important the work is here and how beneficial the loving community here is because sometimes, sometimes leaders need to hear that and, you know, because it's not always easy. So thank you for thanking them. It's turning into a thank fest. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I think someone said the other week, you know, when you speak on grace, we can only offer the grace we've received. And if this is a loving community, it's because we walk out of the love we've received. And... Um, yeah, we'll start thanking for thanking for thank you, so we don't need yeah, to yeah. do that. Yeah. And, um, I, and it, I, th- I think the other thing is, for those, there's no such thing as a perfect community. No. And we all say, we all have bad days and say things and, and, and upset people. And church is messy as well. And it's important to work through sometimes that messiness. Um, because, you know, that's being human. Um, yeah. Any final comments or questions? No? Um, I think what is so clear is that this is such an important topic and we just want to publicly honour you. I would really encourage anyone who wants to read and understand a little bit more to, to buy the book. It's brilliant. And I would hope that you'll be back because it, it's obvious that we have a lot more to talk about and we want to thank you for starting the conversation. So thank you so much, Richard. Bless you. My pleasure. Thank you. We're going to end now with our communion as we, as we do every week. So I'd like to invite you to stand. And um, anyone who's... Thank you. Anyone who's, who's a guest here, we have an open table. The only requirement is that you want to come because this is not our welcome, this is the Lord's. And so please, as Dave leads us in a song, just come quickly and and have the bread and the wine. And I'm also so mindful that we've talked about some very challenging and difficult things that some of us have walked and may be walking. And if, if if anything that has been said this morning has triggered you or has caused you pain or you're in that moment, please allow us to stand with you and remind you that there are human hands to hold you in these days. So let's worship and let's come and 
and take the bread and the wine. Just as we end, um, can I just speak this benediction over us to, to him who is able to keep you and to prevent you from falling and to present you in his presence in all of your glory. To him be all of the glory and all of the honor in the beautiful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Be blessed, Redeemer. Have a good week. Richard will be available for fandom and signings um, and we will see you soon. Thank you.